One bad thing I've noticed oh, about Lord. these new mics is now I hate my laugh. <laughs> Why do you hate your laugh? Because you like when I laugh here, make me laugh. I feel very put on the spot, and now I can't think of anything that's funny or ever has been even slightly humorous. It's not funny. I'm not laughing. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I know. I said it wasn't going to be. It's something like, like, it sounds so fake now because it sounds too clear. And so it's like, ha, 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 ha. Maybe. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> that's why I laugh. No, it's not. <laughs> this is disconcerting. Um. But I think maybe maybe were you like consciously dampening your laugh slightly when we had shitty mics that would crackle when we laughed or were loud? Oh, yeah. So maybe and it's now, like I'm trying to laugh, but I'm also trying to rein it in. Yeah. You just got to let go, baby. Oh! <laughs> maybe, maybe don't let go that much. <laughs> So should we start with our announcement? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about why we weren't around last week. Okay. We're going to not do weekly podcasts. Is this the real podcast? Anymore. This is the real podcast. Okay. Hold on. Disappointed. Leave that in. Disappointed. (laughs) Now they won't be mad if we aren't here every week. Oh my God. Keeping this up as a weekly podcast is um, a lot of work. And we are both busy people. Mm -hmm. And we keep, like, trying really hard to get it out weekly. Genuinely, we we get so upset with ourselves when we can't. And we'd like to have a more sustainable schedule so that we don't burn out and want to stop doing this podcast entirely. Yeah, I don't want to harbor a secret resentment towards all of our listeners. I don't want to harbor a secret resentment toward my best friend Allison. It's a tear, not a title. Aww. I don't harbor any resentments towards you. I likewise harbor none toward you. Wink, wink. Um, (laughs) Oh, I got sad. You winked first. I know, and then you did it to me, and I got sad. (laughs) What do you think I feel? I feel bad now. Oh, Oh, no, this is a nightmare. Uh, Should we start over? This is when our friendship ends. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm gonna I'm gonna remove all the liquids from my house next time you come here. And you'll just have this break the water heater again. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Yeah, part of the reason we didn't get anything up last weekend is my water heater stopped working, and we had no water at all for a day, and then no hot water for like five days. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's because we don't talk unless we're recording. I know, that's sad. It used to be a joke. <laughs> it used to be a joke. Um, oh. Maybe on the off you. weeks, we'll still hang out. I hope so, because we'll I like spending time with you. We'll sit down and pretend to record a co- podcast, but it won't we be. Can, we can um, do other things that are fun. Okay. Like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. It's pronounced Dragons. Oh, the reason I wasn't here last week was because I was in Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas. Both of them. In and out. One side to the other. Wow. Yep. I was watching my friend Megan, listener of the show, <laughs> Hi, get Megan. married. 
She's already Aww, been Oh, congratulations, like, Megan. You know. Yeah, it was a party, though. Was Gotta a party. have a party. I did dancing. It was great. You did dancing? I did a dance with other people. Ooh. Um, should we start the podcast? Hello and welcome to Vintage Lesbians, a personal journey of friendship and queer history, where we try to set the record a little less straight. My name is Shan, and I'm one of your co-hosts. And I'm your other host, Allison. This is not confusing. This is going to be great. Psych! This is Allison, and that's Shan. What's up? What's up, guys? Pals? Folks? I didn't oh, know gosh. Allison was going to do that, but I didn't feel like I could go against the theme she'd set, so <laughs> here we are. Thank you for yes-anding me. I will yes-and you forever. <gasps> and as your DM, I will yes-but you forever. <laughs> Okay, so like, let's... You can do that, but keep in mind that you're wearing metal and you'll kill yourself. This is a thing you've told me before. Yeah, I have said that to you when you tried to lightning bolt the pool of water your metal-clad character was standing in. Um, yeah, it would have worked, though. A lot of people would have... Yeah, things would have died. Mm-hmm. Probably your character included. Do you want to talk about a vintage lesbian? I do! Let's do that. Okay. Is there anything else we say in the beginning that we have we to say? We usually like say like... Like, remember to rate and subscribe. Leave us a little five-star review. Maybe we'll give you a shout-out at the end of the mm-hmm. episode if you do this thing. Yeah. Are you ready? I am. Who are we going to talk about today on Vintage Lesbians? This vintage lesbian was mm-hmm. born just a few months before the Second World War. Are you going to tell me who it is? Yes. On April 16th, 1939, making her an Aries sun, Pisces moon. Hey! Um, She was christened Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien. Was she Catholic? Which, as an Irish Catholic person, is the (laughs) most Irish Catholic name to ever Irish Catholic. (laughs) Um, But she would grow up to be Dusty Springfield. You don't own me. I'm not just one of you. Who this is. Yeah. Did I sound convincing as if I didn't know who this is? is Not at all. No. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I think everyone knows by now that we tell each other things. Um, her family was, in fact, Catholic. And uh, her mother, Catherine Ann Kay O'Brien, was from County Kerry, Ireland. And her father, Gerard Anthony O.B. O'Brien, was raised in British India. Uh, Mary was the younger sister of Dionysius P.A. O'Brien. Good name. Uh, yeah, who would later be known as Tom Springfield, the huh. musician. Yes. Nice. Did yeah. he find having the name Dionysus O'Brien to be hard to sell music? Yeah. Is that why he went to Tom? I, Tom Springfield? <laughs> I mean, I think they definitely changed their names for the aesthetic. Uh, but yeah, Di- Dion- Dionysius, I Dionysius. think. Dionysius? Yeah, or, Dion- or Dionysius or Dionysius. Because there's an I-U-S at the end. He went by, like, Dion or Dion as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, Dion, what's that short for? <laughs> Dionysius. Thanks, Mom. They lived in northwest London, but left pretty quickly after Mary was born when the bobbing raids started. And they moved to High Wycombe, Buckinghamshire, which is a town notable for furniture manufacturing and nothing else. I did not know Dusty Springfield was British. Mm-hmm. So Mary and Dion 
Dion, Dion. We'll go with Dion. Mary and Dion were able to like run and play freely in the country, uh, which sounds so nice. But the neighbors mm-hmm. complained that Obi and Kay never cut their grass mm-hmm. and were like kind of kept to themselves. Were they introverts or were they part of a cult? Were they, they murdering people? Were... <sighs> this family was not like super healthy or happy. Oh. In 1950, K and Ob were pretty tired of country living, but they didn't want to go back fully to like the urban city existence. So they moved to Ealing, which was one of the only London suburbs that still felt like a quiet country, and they could also easily access the city, which is nice. And on the surface, they enjoyed like comfortable middle class life. Ob and K were from respectable families. Mary and Dion went to respectable Catholic schools. They went to Catholic church every Sunday and every feast day holidayed at a small resort in southern england that sounds like an idyllic upper middle class english lifestyle doesn't it like they were a music loving family too so dion and mary would like have the radio on while they did schoolwork. they would play rhythm games with their father he would like tap out rhythms and have them guess the song she earned the nickname dusty because she had a propensity to get like covered in dust playing football with her brother and his friends that's cute she was kind of a tomboy as a child Oh, I love that she came by it naturally. Yeah. I love the name Dusty. It's a good name. Should I change my name to Dusty? Probably. Okay. Underneath that, like, respectable surface, there was a lot of dysfunction. Uh, Her mother would react in anger to, like, benign requests, like, please pass the potatoes. Hmm. She would just throw them onto the floor or across the table. One time she spent a long time making a trifle perfectly and then she destroyed it hmm. with a spoon just like whacking it over and over again so definitely some unacknowledged mental illness yeah. with both her mother and her father her father was very anxious very much a perfectionist and mary probably inherited some mental illness from both of them she would react a lot like her mother did as an adult and like she and dion grew up thinking throwing food was normal so mm-hmm. they did that as adults too She got that, like, perfectionist anxiety from her dad and described herself as having an addictive personality. Mm -hmm. In her biography, uh, there's a line that says she learned deep lessons in the school of self-loathing in her childhood home. And it just really made me feel very sad. That got me very, very... Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, She was not... uh, student who got very high marks but her brother was pretty academically successful and her parents were very proud of that and kind of doted on him and kind of neglected her she said she had no recollection of affection or warmth growing up but a raging ambivalence i recently started reading complex ptsd from surviving to thriving by pete walker i have that book right here what that's wild but like so far i'm not that far into it but so far Everything you're describing kind of sounds like a case study from that book. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. um, That does not surprise me at all. Um, Along with, like, trauma at home, she was attending Catholic girls' schools, where you learn a fear of men and boys that only a 1950s Catholic school sex education could instill. I was going to say, Catholic girls' schools in the 50s, known for their lack of trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm told that she was gay. She was gay. Um, 
she says she was afraid of men and they were mysterious to her because she grew up basically segregated from any man who wasn't a family member so she didn't learn how to interact with men or boys her age basically she was just taught that they were to be feared that she needed to be demure Mm -hmm. so as not to tempt them to their animal lustiness because if they did she would have to go to confession (laughs) what i'm saying is that the catholic church teaches women and girls that they have to be the custodians of virtue and men and boys get to basically do whatever they want and then they can blame it on women Mm -hmm. and we still have that today we sure do outside of the catholic church but yeah, she says she was afraid of men. She um she says she turned down both Mick Jagger and George Best in the 60s because she was petrified of them. Nice. I mean, not nice that she was petrified, but kind of nice that she's like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how true any of this is. I was working from a few different sources. One of them was like an authorized biography. One was an unauthorized biography. And one was Wikipedia. Wikipedia is actually just how I found the biographies. Ah, nice. <laughs> And where I got, like, her list of discography and some dates and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I spent a week uh, reading a biography, basically. Nice. <laughs> she had a really interesting life. Um, she and her brother were, were both musically talented from a very young age, uh, probably nurtured by their father's perfectionism or mm-hmm. pushed by it. Because she doesn't um, – she never talked about it with, like, fondness, like those rhythm games. Um, she talks about him getting mad if they guessed wrong. Uh it just it just seems like a real rough way to grow up mm-hmm. um her brother uh is quoted as saying that mary had a special gift in her voice from a very young age from like 14 she knew that she wanted to sing and dance she says that she really wanted to be an actress but she didn't feel like she was pretty enough but she did love like the swirling ball gowns and the flowing blonde hair and fred astaire and ginger rogers yeah. and she just loved that uh the glamour. The glamour and the escapism and uh, and the aesthetic. Yes. She had brown curly hair uh, when she was young. She did start to cultivate her aesthetic before she even left school. Yeah, I think of her as like a blonde beehive. Yeah. You're telling me that beehive isn't natural. It's not. What? I know. I'm sorry to disappoint you in this uh, way. Wow. Okay. Uh, When she was 17, she and Dion started to get booked to sing and play guitar at a few of the, like, posh clubs on the West End. And she would scour the want ads every day for a job in music, which is how she became the third member of the Lana Sisters. Her, Riss Chantel, and Lynn Abrams, totally unrelated, but sister Mm -hmm. acts were super popular at the time. So Mary cut her hair to um, resemble Riss and Lynn, tried to ditch her glasses and wear contacts but at the time contacts were like yeah horrible and painful so she it's like they just slice the bottom off of a cup <laughs> and then just stick it in your eyes she dressed in lurex and satin and she changed her name mm-hmm. to shan that's your name that's my name shan, did you know that she went by shan for like two years with uh the lana sisters and she learned how to be an entertainer and work the stage and she performed and toured with them for two years working so- with People like Nat King Cole and Johnny Ray and Cliff Richard appearing on radio and television and enjoying her first taste of success. Like, basically the first thing she did after being like, okay, I'm going to go into music was like, well, just going to create a popular sister act with these two girls Mm -hmm. and just like do it. Changed my name to Shan, Lana. Did you (laughs) know that she changed her name to Shan for a few years before you started 
Before you started researching? I did not. I found that out yesterday. <laughs> I did not know either. When you found out, did you go, oh, that's my name? I did. I did. Um, I gasped and I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and Joe, Joe was working from home at the time. <laughs> right there where you're sitting. And uh, it was um, a funny little it was i very much distracted them but it was very funny uh so mary and lynn and riss stayed or shan and Rin and Liz stayed friends for like 20 years and about a year into her time with the lana sisters dion started a folk duo with a guy named tim fields one of his friends and they really wanted mary to join Mm-hmm. Um, and she did when she was 21. She was very drawn to like the folk and Latin influenced material they performed, and she really wanted her brother's approval. I don't know what mm-hmm. that's like. Uh, <laughs> so it was uh, 1960, and with the Springfields, Mary experienced not only success but fame for the first time. Um, she also uh, around then went blonde and officially became dusty springfield and her brother mm-hmm. became tom springfield so tom tim and dusty mm-hmm. uh, did tim stay on as one of those tim did not stay on for very long he was replaced by someone else but i didn't write that name down because it's not really part of yeah that's fair uh dusty's ongoing story the springfields really benefited from the growing popularity of television Uh, And Dusty's natural presence and rapport with the camera served them really, really well, especially because Tom and Tim were very stiff and awkward (laughs) on camera. The Springfields were the first ever British group that made the charts in America. Really? Yeah. And in 1963, they toured America. Huh. But by September of that year, they announced they were splitting up. Ah. Um, And after a farewell concert, Dusty signed a solo deal with Philips Studios. But before the news of the band breaking up was public, Dusty went to the Red Diffusion television offices and told them that the Springfields would not be able to be on the first episode of the TV show they were booked on. She said she'd do it solo Mm -hmm. instead. A little bit of back and forth, and it was decided that she would just host the show. Oh, okay. (laughs) Or co-host it. Um, That show was called Ready, Steady, Go. Her name was pretty synonymous with Ready, Steady, Go for a long time. Um, She premiered her first single on Ready, Steady, Go. And despite her, like, natural camera presence and the fact that the performers she was bantering with were her friends... Dusty was really nervous and would like shuffle back and forth when she was on camera. It couldn't, it wasn't seen by television audiences because she was only filmed from the waist up. But uh, yeah, every time she was on camera and not singing, she would do that little shuffle step because she really only felt comfortable when she was singing. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me because, like, even if it's just your friends and something you're good at and stuff. Yeah. Millions of people are watching, probably. I don't know how many people watch TV back in Not those days. that many, because um, television thousands. was really only uh, scores of people, up. upwards but of ten, certainly more than more than five. You know, and mm-hmm. that's a lot, <laughs> depending on what it's relative to. But uh, <laughs> she cultivated a look that she felt hid her flaws. It included thick eyeliner and dramatic wigs and mm-hmm. beaded dresses, and she really became 
like a style icon of the 60s and like the the mod look was really based on her style the mods kind of felt that she was theirs Mm -hmm. yeah if you think of the like 60s mod movement you probably do think of Dusty Springfield even if you don't know even if you don't know her name Mm -hmm. yeah her debut album, A Girl Called Dusty, was released in April 1964. It was mostly remakes of her favorite songs, but it reached number six on the UK charts. Three chart-topping singles followed that year, um, one of which included a B-side that was written by Dusty. She didn't write very often, even though those songs were well-received because she didn't really enjoy writing. Uh, she did it for the money, because that's really, in, in the music industry, writing is really where the money is. Mm-hmm. In December of 64, she was touring South Africa, but the tour was terminated by the South African government and she was deported because she played to an integrated audience near Cape Town and that was illegal. Ugh. Yeah. Basically, she she refused to play to a segregated audience. So yeah, good they for her. integrated it and then she got kicked out of the country. Um, she right. often covered songs by black artists and she was one of the only white artists who really had the ability to do those songs justice. Mm-hmm. She's credited with popularizing the Motown R&B sound in the UK because she facilitated the first UK TV appearance for The Temptations, The Supremes, The Miracles, and Stevie Wonder on one special episode of Ready, Steady, Go. I was going to ask, like, did she credit, like, the people? But then it sounds like... Oh, yeah. Yes, not only credit them, but, like, actually give them a voice. Was it a, like... Like in Hairspray, how, like, once a month they had the black kids on. Like, that kind of a special... Well, like, that TV appearance, yes. Mm -hmm. Also in 1965, her second album, Everything's Coming Up Dusty, uh, came out and reached number six in the UK charts. March 1966, she released uh, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, the single. I don't think I know it. Can you sing it for me right now? No, I can't. I'm oh. so sorry. Um, but it reached number one in the UK and number four in the US, and it was on the, it was number 35 on the Billboard Top 100 list of that year, which is pretty neat. Yeah, it's a pretty important list. Mm-hmm. Especially back in that day. Yeah. Well, I would a weird way to say that sentence. <laughs> Especially back in the day. Back in my day. Uh, she was a bit of an odd duck. Her behavior at the beginning of her career was more or less seen as, like, fun because she was young. She had a wicked sense of humor, but uh, instigated food fights pretty often. <laughs> she also, like her mom, had a tendency to overreact. One time a friend brought cooking whiskey instead of like drinking whiskey to put in a stew and she threw the whole pot at the wall oh yeah, yeah that is an overreaction it really really is um unless 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 the whiskey was poisoned and she knew it because she's Ooh, very yeah. good at smelling yeah maybe she that saved was everybody's it. lives she saved everybody's lives a compilation of her singles was released in november of 1966 and it charted at number two in the uk and in that same year, she began a domestic partnership with Norma Tanega, a singer-songwriter from the U.S. Hmm. Yeah. Things just got a little gay in here. Just a little bit. <laughs> They've always been gay. Yeah. Um, and she hosted a music and talk show on BBC TV. It was called Dusty. 
Nice. You can see her naming convention here. <laughs> uh, that ran for uh, two seasons of six episodes each in 1966 and 1967. She also hosted two other TV shows for the BBC, It Must Be Dusty and Decidedly Dusty. They aired in 1968 and 1969. Nice. Nice. Um, Decidedly Dusty was wiped from the BBC archives and only exists in audio format now, and I cannot figure out why. Huh. But by 1968, her status was floundering somewhat because she was struggling to keep up with what was popular and unfashionable and what was underground and fashionable. And, like, often those were very different things. Mm -hmm. She signed with Atlantic Records to try to gain more popularity in the U.S. One of her producers was Jerry Wexler, who would later sign a band called Led Zeppelin. I don't know if you've heard of them. Led Zeppelin? Led Led Zeppelin. That's a funny name for a band. Anyway, based partly on her advice, he signed them sight unseen. Oh, cool. To the biggest contract that had ever been given to a new band at the time. That's incredible. Yeah, she was well respected. Mm -hmm. And the album that she recorded with Atlantic, called Dusty in Memphis, was critically acclaimed, but it did not sell very well. It peaked at 99 on the Billboard Top 200 that year. But by 2001, the album would receive uh, the Grammy Hall of Fame award and be listed as one of Rolling Stone's greatest albums of all time. Sounds like she had incredible taste. The lead single from that album did chart after its 1968 release. It reached number 10 on the UK, US, and international charts, uh, peaking at number three on the Swiss charts. It nabbed her a Grammy nomination, and this is probably... Like, when you think Dusty Springfield, what song do you think of? I think of Son of a Preacher Man by Janis Joplin. (laughs) Well, that was released in 1968 by Dusty Springfield. In 1987, Rolling Stone listed it as number 77 on the top 100 songs of the last 25 years. It is... It's a pretty good song. It's a pretty good song. It's number 43 on the greatest singles of all time list that was made in 2002. And in 2004, it made another Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Nice. It's a good song and she does it well. She does. I like... I'm going to come out and say it. I like the Dusty Springfield version more than I like the Janis Joplin version. Me Even too. though I grew up with the Janis Joplin version. And I do love Janis Joplin. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Dusty Springfield. We sure are. When the, when the 70s hit, Dusty was a major star with declining record sales. And her relationship with Norma was not going great. There was mm-hmm. a lot of fighting. There was a lot of silent treatment. Um... Well, it sounds like Dusty grew up in a very tormental household and then immediately got famous. So I feel like she probably never really learned, I don't know, conflict resolution. I or, think you're probably you know, right. Nice, good, healthy relationship talking. Yeah. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. you're right. Uh, Norma moved back to Los Angeles uh, in the summer of 1970, leaving Dusty in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dusty had been spending more and more time in the U.S. recording her albums with Atlantic Records and performing and whatnot. Um, so she followed Norma pretty soon after, and they did attempt to live 
together again, but they agreed that their relationship wasn't working and it probably wasn't ever going to work again. So they ended things. Was she open about her relationship with Norma that you know about? She wasn't. I mean, they lived together. Mm-hmm. She wasn't open about it, but she didn't like. She didn't hide it. Hide it either. But she didn't say um, like, my girlfriend, which makes sense based yeah, on the time period yeah. and everything. Um, she really did not want to be seen as gay. Mm-hmm. She never really fully admitted to being gay to the press. I mean, it would have um, hurt her record sales at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she seemed to need the attention and affection of her fans more than, like, anything else. She would stay for hours signing autographs after shows, being admired, flirting. Mm-hmm. She really struggled with her insecurities, with self-harm, with addiction, and the fear of being seen as a big butch gay. Um, she gave an interview in 1970 to the Evening Standard saying, I know I'm perfectly as capable of being swayed by a girl as by a boy. More and more people feel that way. I don't see why I shouldn't. It is That's often quoted now like by people who talk about her being queer. But at the time, it really wasn't news. It, it wasn't even like a quote in the article, mm-hmm. like a pull quote. Interesting, because if like any artist said that nowadays, like it would be the 100% only thing people talked about right? in that article. It's it's strange how media has, like, specifically, like, tabloid media has shifted things. Uh, she recorded one more album with Atlantic Records and then sang backup vocals on Elton John's album Tumbleweed Connection. Hmm. I forgot to mention this earlier, but after the mid-60s, she would sing backup under the pseudonym Gladys Thong, <laughs> which is very good. Did she know it was going to be funny at the time? I think she did. I think that she did, yes. When were thongs invented? Probably a long time ago. Let's find out later. Okay. Um, She got a a new manager uh, who negotiated her out of her contract with Atlantic Records, even though she had, like, already recorded some songs with them for a new album. He was able to, like, use those those songs later on on a UK-only album. Uh, and then she signed with ABC Dunhill Records in 1972 and released one album with them. Unfortunately, her reputation took a a bit of a hit in 1972. She was booked to play a run of shows uh, and she lost her voice. Aww. She was super late for the first show and she like struggled through it with um, basically like she was given a, a shot of cortisone in her throat Ugh. to loosen things up. Ugh. Uh, and then the next she like she did not do a great job at that show it's the first time she ever struggled with her vocal performance and the next day a doctor put her on complete rest for three days so she had to cancel uh the next few shows and they ended up firing her from the four-week contract completely her management wanted to sue them for damages it was a whole Mm -hmm. thing also in 1972, she began an on-and-off relationship with an American photojournalist named Faye Harris. Um, they were on and off for like six years until mm-hmm. 1978. Um, in 1973, she recorded the theme song for the fir- for the TV series Six Million Dollar Man uh, that was used for two of its like special episodes. Yeah. I'm unfamiliar with that theme song. Can you sing it for me? I right now? cannot. Okay. <laughs> Hi everybody, Shan here. I was wrong about this fact. This theme song was for the two TV movies that preceded the TV series Six Million Dollar Man 
And the reason I'm butting in to tell you that is because I tried really hard to get an MP3 download of the theme song, but I couldn't. So I'm going to hold the mic up to my laptop speaker because I need this gift to be shared with the world. Enjoy. It ends with an explosion. Um, in that same year, she did an interview with the Los Angeles Free Press and said, <clears throat> I mean, people say that I'm gay, 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 gay. I'm not anything. I'm just people are people. I basically want to be straight. I go from men to women. I don't give a shit. The catchphrase is, I can't love a man. Now that's my hang-up. To love, to go to bed, fantastic, but to love a man is my prime ambition. They frighten me. She's She's got some stuff. She's pretty gay. She's pretty gay. <laughs> Who amongst us hasn't, especially if you like grew up in a super religious or conservative household, yeah. had very similar things. But the thing is, is like... I think I'm going to try to be straight. Even that quote... Uh, like, I go from men to women. She was never reported as being in a heterosexual relationship. Mm-hmm. Ever. <laughs> like, ever like, in her life. It's almost like she was gay, but really, really trying to hide it. Like, when I was coming out, um, and I initially thought I was bi, because I would definitely be with men hypothetically. It's that hypothetical that gets you. Mm-hmm. And still am, kind of. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Why do I need to label it? Dusty was scheduled to release an album in late 1974, but the recording sessions were abandoned, and part of that material was released on a posthumous compilation in 2001. By mid-1974, she was living very reclusively in the U.S., um, partially to avoid scrutiny in the U.K. tabloids, because being openly gay or bi at that time led to a lot of unwanted media attention, loss of contracts, loss of record sales. Yeah, for real. But she continued having relationships with women throughout the 70s and 80s, and this was not a secret from the LGBT community at all. Like, it was pretty well known. Also during this time, she was hospitalized several times for self-harm and issues with addiction, uh, especially when her life felt unstable in her, like, career or her intimate life. She released two albums with United Artists Records, one in 1978 and one in 1979, uh, and she also performed a charity concert in 1979 to a sold-out Royal Albert Hall. Um, Princess Margaret was in the audience. Oh my goodness. Yeah. In 1981, she had an intense six-month affair with Carol Pope of the rock band Rough Trade, and when that ended, she found herself alone and without enough money to pay rent and addicted to drugs and alcohol and mm-hmm. um she had to start selling off uh valuable items like her r&b collection of albums and like priceless artwork oh. and for a little while she made extra money uh performing at gay bars in la uh she her voice was shot so she would basically lip sync to her own songs she looked very glamorous while doing it Mm -hmm. uh but she was that she calls that her lowest point of her life it must be 
like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it would feel so low to her, I feel like. Because, like, she was... Well, you go from Had such an incredible voice at first, and then to lose that. It sounds like that's where she got close to 100% of all of her, like, self-worth and everything. And then that's gone. She's like, oh, that's the only thing I had going for me. Yeah, I don't... You're not wrong. Uh, It was around this time, too, that she became uh, an advocate for animal protection groups, uh, like the Wildlife Way Station. And she she loved cats, and she would travel around. Like, she would keep cat food in the trunk of her car in case she found strays. Aww. Like, she's a very sweet lady. (laughs) Um, She did start going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings where she met um, Teta Brachy. Seven months after they met, they were married in an unrecognized California ceremony. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did not have a healthy relationship at all. Uh, Within two years, they had split up. Teta hit dusty in the face with a frying pan uh, causing some of her teeth to get knocked out and she needed plastic surgery to repair the damage but um she had very little money and even though like a friend of hers lent her money for the surgery she Mm -hmm. chose to get uh the the cheapest option and her face was left like unexpressive and frozen and she had a lopsided smile um, yeah, she she was not a well person. Yeah. Um, I don't think she ever got any kind of mental health support that she needed. <laughs> yeah. Like she she did continue to release albums in the in the eighties. She was very influenced by new wave music, and she really was proud of her album White Heat that was released in eighty two. But none of her music between 1971 and 1986 made it to the UK Top 40 or to the Billboard 100. She was hooked on on pills that made her behave very erratically. And whether that was a prescribed pill or one that she was just getting somewhere, I'm not sure. I do know that she was on Ritalin that she was not prescribed. Someone gave it to her to calm her down. And she took Xanax regularly. At uh, at one charity event, she showed up late, started singing, sang four lines poorly, and then her voice gave out. And she left the stage and then came back with a vacuum cleaner, vacuumed the entire stage while humming, and then left. Huh. That's not something that, generally speaking, someone would do if they were in like no. a healthy place. No. Like her Unless voice, it was like an avant-garde statement. Yeah, her voice was was pretty destroyed. She would show up late to shows, late to recording sessions. She would sing very slowly. She got she gained a reputation for being difficult to deal with, and like the drugs were not helping. And some of them were being given to her under the guise of being helpful. And I, I think that a lot of people took advantage of her, and I think that a lot of people were not helpful to her, and. She also used up a lot of goodwill, too, Mm -hmm. by not being able to regulate her own emotions. Um, And during this time, she ended up on welfare and on food stamps. And eventually, she started to come out the other side. She got a new manager and a contract and started making money again, started to relax. 
1987, she did a duet with the lead singer of the Pet Shop Boys. That single reached number two in the U.S. and U.K. charts and was on the Pet Shop Boys' next album and on both their and Dusty's greatest hits albums. You always So she had like a second revival, so, or not a second revival, but she had like a career revival after this. She um, she was living in the UK full time again after 1988, and she released a compilation album that year, uh, another UK top 20 single in 1989, and a top 20 studio album in 1990, which is the year you were born. That's the year I was born! <gasps> And she started work on her next album in 1993. The working title was Dusty in Nashville, but it was released as A Very Fine Love. Because it was going to be uh, country songs, and then she was like, no, I'm going to sing pop songs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever. Um, but her name wasn't in it, which I, I feel like wasn't on I brand. I, it really wasn't. Well, I guess White Heat. Yeah. Like, in January of 1994, while she was working on that album, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, after chemotherapy and radiation treatment put it into remission, she was able to promote the album uh, for its June 1995 release. Her last recorded studio track was the Gershwin song Someone to Watch Over Me for an insurance ad. Someone watch over me That recording was included on her final album, which was an anthology that was released in 2000. She helped to plan that. It was called Simply Dusty. Back at it with the Dusty Mm -hmm. games. And her final live performance was in December of 1995 on a TV Christmas special. Um, Because in 1996, the cancer came back and unfortunately treatment did not do anything this time and she died uh, March of 1999. Two weeks later she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Elton John helped make that happen. He is quoted as saying I'm biased but I think she was the greatest white singer there ever has been. Every song she sang she claimed as her own and her funeral was attended by hundreds of fans and friends including Elvis Costello and the Pet Shop Boys Uh, There's a marker in her memory that stands in the graveyard of the parish church of St. Mary the Virgin in Henley-on-Thames, and some of her ashes are buried there. The rest, her brother, Tom Springfield, scattered at the cliffs of Mohair in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, And that is Dusty. Wow. Thank you for telling me about her. She lived a lot longer than I thought she was going to. Me too. Yeah. Because that's, (laughs) if it was 97, that makes her about... 99 she died 99 so it makes her about 60 years old Mm -hmm. but it did sound like she was like sort of living like she was going to die very early very early on yeah I uh I really think she was dealt both a really bad hand and a really good one Mm -hmm. and unfortunately if you don't have the proper support for she was diagnosed with bipolar depression um, but i don't know when and i don't know if she was given like decent treatment for it this was the 80s Mm -hmm. so psychiatric drugs were not 
super great. Like the Ritalin that she was taking, the Xanax that she was taking, we didn't know enough about dosages and yeah. body types. And if she got bi- diagnosed with bipolar, they might have started getting giving her lithium and just like yeah, all kinds of unregulated. I guess it was regulated, but like not finesse. Yeah, but it wasn't but like regulated yeah. in a way that was really all that healthy because mm-hmm. it was still kind of one size fits all medicine. Um, but yeah, she had she had a rough go of it, but she was incredibly successful. She was the icon of the 60s she's Mm -hmm. the person you think of when you think of Maude if you're not thinking of Twiggy like Mm -hmm. (laughs) she was pretty cool and also her name was Shan for two years and of course I'm gonna love that yeah yeah she seemed like a I was gonna say she seemed like a cool lady she seemed like a a a lady who had a lot of bad things happen to her but like on the whole I don't know she wanted I think like she just wanted to be loved. I, th- yeah. she, I think the the truth of it is that she was a sad little girl who grew up into a sad woman who didn't know how to regulate herself or her emotions, who got introduced to drugs, and it kind of wrecked her life. But Kids not knowing that it's not okay to like throw things at the dinner table. If that's how you later. grow up, that's yeah. what you learn, and it's very hard to unlearn those things as an adult much less a famous adult because mm-hmm. you're given a lot more leeway when yeah. you have no fame gonna like, everyone's gonna be like oh dusty she's so quirky yeah Food fights no one's gonna say hey you know no one actually does that right yeah anyway should we start more food fights though mm, no okay we should say thank you to leslie for our beautiful leslie. logo as we always do leslie hey it's allison um, thank you for our logo. You're pretty great. And if you want to support Leslie, just, you know, do it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll let you know in the future how you can support Leslie as we figure it out. Yeah. Hey, Leslie, <laughs> good job on that sonic redesign. I give you full credit. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. So much better. You really, you really knocked it out of the park, Leslie. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also support us on Patreon, as we discussed earlier, or you can rate and review us on uh, the iTunes. Mm-hmm. You can follow us on social media. Yes, you could follow our podcast on social media at Vintage Les Pod, L-E-S-P-O-D, or you could follow our personal pages on social media. I'm at Justashan underscore. And I'm at Allison Humphreys. You figure out how to spell it yourself. Thank you. Thank you indeed for listening. And we will be back in your ears in two weeks. Two calendar weeks. Two weeks might be um, Thanksgiving. We'll see. We'll figure we'll it figure out. We'll figure it out. All right. We Smell love you. Later. I love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And that was Vintage Lesbian.